keep falsehood and lies far from me, and give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you, and say who is the Lord, or I may become poor and steal, and so dishonor the name of our God. After we prayed this prayer, it was, um, God, just give us just enough so that we're completely dependent upon you. My Father, my love, you can have me. We're in this process of studying and learning what radical may look like. A couple of radical examples within our own church. And again, we're, hopefully you have been in the study long enough. You have read enough chapters in Platt's book uh, long enough and gone far, far enough that we're not talking about Quran burning, uh, Kool-Aid drinking, uh, jihad living kind of radical Christian faith. That the kind of Christian faith that we're speaking of is really a biblical model of a faith that is totally radical and runs contrary to the cultural norms that we see lived out in the cultural Christianity of America. I'd like to know, just just show by show of hands, how many in this room are reading the radical book right now? All right? In process. Great. I hope that you are being challenged to your core. If you're not, please jump in and begin. It's not that the book is infallible and inerrant, but I think what it does is it brings us to a simple question. And I think we're far enough into this study that all of us should be probably consciously or subconsciously asking ourselves this, this one question, and this one question, is Jesus worth it? Because what we are talking about, what we're, what we're going to and if we look at this as a biblical model and the Bible says this and I should do this, then we're really kind of asking ourselves that question, again, consciously or subconsciously, is Jesus really worth this? Did I really sign up for this level of faith living? Or can I go over here and emulate the, the Christianity culture that I see in, in my friends, that I can see in other churches, that I can see in our culture when everybody's a Christian and we're all kind of still living the American dream? We have to ask ourselves that question. Is Jesus worth it? Is, 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 is He worth reprioritizing my life? Is He worth the reprioritization of my life to where I, I truly evaluate every, every dime that I have and every, every, every moment that I spend and, 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 and that I'm going to reprioritize my life to, to, to such a degree that God will somehow in every calendar event, in, in every dollar spent, in, in, in everything of my life, there's, there's a, in relationships or whatever, there is a priority of God is somehow connected to it all. Is He worth that so that I can make space in my life to finally, eventually in my life, tithe that I've never tithed before? I've only just tipped God, but I'm ready to make Him priority of that. Is He really worth my vacation time? That I would literally give up my vacation time to, to go serve in a third world country. People who are hungry, people who have never even heard the word of Jesus Christ. Don't know that name. Don't know that person. Is He really worth my vacation? Is He worth my career as I continue to swim upstream in this culture? 
And I, I know people, I've talked with people in our church just even this past week who are trying as best they can in the culture and the world that they live is big, big business in northwest Arkansas to small business in northwest Arkansas. How can I interface my faith and my work? And some people are asking that question. Others are ignoring the question because really when it comes down to it, Jesus just isn't worth it. Is he, is he worth disrupting my platitudes and my attitudes about religion? Is He so much more than just this kind of platitude kind of God where I say the right things and I look the right way and, and I talk the right lingo and I, and I hang out with the right people at least enough on Sundays or a body life group that really I've got the platitudes down and my attitude is just really about, about God is my weekend affair. You can go back a few weeks ago and think about that. Or is He more? Is he really worth interrupting those things and disrupting that area of my life? Is he worth risking my life? We are living in a day where persecution of believers is on the increase. There are more people dying for the cause of Christ than died in the first century for the cause of Christ today. But we don't see them in our American culture. But I tell you, we need to get ready for the day that that will become more and more the norm. But I'm afraid that Satan has got us on a track, on a road, on a journey of a Christian faith that is so much full of platitudes and attitudes that are so much contrary to the biblical model that I'm afraid we're missing it. I'm afraid we're missing what it really means to live out that Christian faith. And it's a dangerous thing because these detours and dead ends that we're heading down are, are again, not a biblical model and they're, they're, they're not a safe model for us to go on. Taking your Bibles and finding the book of Mark chapter 10. This may be, today, the most important message of this entire series. I come because, I mean, I think about all the messages, but I really think that we've gone fur, fur enough. I'm from Arkansas. Far enough in the study, we've gone farther, uh, far enough in the study that, that, that we are probably, again, asking ourselves that question. Oh, when we go into the, in, into the study, when we go into the book, when we go into the body life groups, when you hear these messages and we really think, okay, is my vacation worth that? Is my money worth that? Is my career, my ro- are they worth that? Am I willing to put things and live a little bit different life? Is it really Jesus? That, is that the Jesus I want? And we're asking ourselves this question, and the problem is, is that we don't have a whole lot of models and mentors out there for us to follow on this track. And so, therefore, it's much easier to stay back here and to just stay in the path. And I want to say that is a dead end and a detour that we are on. And we need to be very conscious and aware of it. And Mark chapter 10 tells the story of, I think, a a fine example of an American dream kind of individual, a man who is entrepreneurial in his skills and his abilities to make wealth. And and there's nothing wrong with making wealth. I want to get that out on the table right now. There's nothing wrong with making wealth. All right? It's what we do with that wealth once we have it. That's where it becomes because money is all moral. It's what we, happens in us that becomes whether moral or immoral. But here's a man who's evidently a young, rich ruler. It says many people have titled this man that. And as this young, rich ruler comes up to Jesus, wants to follow Jesus, and which is all great and good. But as he comes up to follow Jesus and and to follow Jesus, what does that look like and what does that mean? And he just comes up all gung-ho. He falls at Jesus' feet. He, he says, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to be in line with you. I want to go with you, Jesus. And he says, well, what do you mean by that? 
says, what do you mean by, by, by following me? He said, I want to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus said, well, have you done this, 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 and this? He said, I've done all that since a teenager, since a child. You're looking at a rich young ruler who, who had been amazing in his life. He, he didn't live the frat party life. He didn't live the rebellious teenage years. Somehow through all of his life, he's saying that, hey, listen, I have been doing the right thing. He comes up and he calls him good. He calls the teacher good, which is a, a whole point into itself that I'll get to in a moment. But, but he comes up and he falls down at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says, you need to go do one more thing. As we come to this story, you, many of you all know the story. And that one more thing, that one more thing was the thing that held him back. And I think it's, it's beginning to give us a picture of what a detour looks like and what a dead end may look like on this whole radical journey. So let's read the story. Maybe we can cap, cap, capture, capture this, the, the heart of it as we, as we read it. Verse 17, Mark chapter 10. It says, And as he was sitting on his journey, Jesus and his disciples were on their road to Jerusalem. And on a man ran up and knelt down before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, some people have interpreted that statement to mean that, that Jesus was denying his, his goodness, his perfection. And actually what Jesus was iterating with this guy is that this guy is declaring that Jesus is good. He is God. He is, he, is, he, he is recognizing his deity. Jesus isn't denying his deity. He is saying, listen, if you are calling me good and there's only one good and he is God, then you're on track. So the sincerity of this man is in line. He said, there's only one good out there. It must be God. You're recognizing me as God. So you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. All of us in this room today would list those as qualities, character qualities, that we would want to have, behavioral qualities that we would want to have in our life and we'd want to pass on to our children. Verse 20. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've done from my youth, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I want you to not miss that point right there. This Jesus loved this individual. It may seem as though it's that Jesus is being almost hateful to him. If you read through it real quickly, as he's saying, he's, he's he maybe countering him and saying, hey, you've got to go do this. He, Jesus had a deep love for this individual. There's love exuding from Jesus' heart. He loved him. He said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and he said to him, How difficult is it for, for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at the words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, And who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them, With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. All things are possible with God. Would you just bow your heads with me for a moment? Father, we come to a message like this and we just ask that You would be our teacher. 
that, Lord, we would not come with platitudes and attitudes of religiosity. We would get past the American dream. We would look past our contented, complacent faith. And that we would full on see what you want when you are calling your disciples. So that when we leave here, Lord, that we will call ourselves a disciple because not because we've been to church building. Because we are walking in your path that you call all your disciples to. Lord, help us to identify the detour and the dead end of this world and of our faith. And help us to repent of it today. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to real quickly look at a detour and at a dead end. Two dangerous turns that we can all make in our faith. And you jot them down and we will go through them as fast as we possibly can. One is a detour. Beware of the detours out there. The detour of mediocrity is the detour that we need to be extremely aware of. The detour of mediocrity, the whole idea that God is calling us all in. Everything's on the table. Nothing's held back. Nothing's holding back. We are all in 100% of the time with our lives. The problem is, is that mediocrity slips into our life when we look at our life and we say, my life, my faith, my giving, my serving, my going, my doing, my loving, my caring, my forgiving, my whatever I've decided, this is my faith and I'm putting this much out there and I'm not putting any more. When we take on that attitude, we begin to shape our Christianity in our form, in our ideas, in our dreams with our limitations. When God is not calling us to that, He is calling us to an all-in kind of faith. What happens, mediocrity begins to slip in when we begin to say, I've done good enough. I've given enough. I've said enough. I've shared enough. I've loved enough. I've forgiven enough. And whenever we start putting those kind of limitations out there, then our faith becomes just good enough and mediocrity slips in. Mediocrity is when the desire to follow God as this man was, desire lacks perseverance and commitment, so you settle. The whole idea, again, the platitude of following Jesus is something that we'd all like to have ascribed to us. The idea that I'm a Christian and I, and I identify with Christ is something that we want everyone to know that we're a Christian. I don't doubt that about anybody in this room who says that they're a Christian. But I really wonder if we are truly, truly Truly living like that. This man comes to Jesus and he falls at his feet and he cries to God. He says, listen, what does a man have to do to gain eternal life? Evidently, he's baking on some message, something that Jesus has talked about in the past. So he's been listening to Jesus and his eternal, eternal life talks. Podcast, I don't know. However, he had heard something about Jesus and the eternal life answers. So he comes up to Jesus kneels to him, calls him good. You can see the sincerity in the whole uh, presentation of this man. You can hear him in his voice when Jesus says, you know the, the commandments, and Jesus goes through them. He says, I've done them all. I've done them all since I was a youth. I, I've been on track. You're God. You're good. I recognize you as God. And then Jesus lowers the bomb on him. 
when he's got this whole rocked up life of honoring his father and mother, never committing a... Listen, he never looked at porn on, te- on, on TV or the internet. He, he never committed adultery against his wife. He was always respectful. He was always an ethical person. He was an upstanding citizen. He did it all. He didn't commit adultery. He didn't steal. He didn't bear false witness. He, he didn't defraud his neighbors. He didn't defraud the, his, his, his employer. He did none of that. He, was, he honored his father and mother. This man was a good, upstanding individual. But Jesus lowers the bomb. He said in verse 29, he says, there's one thing. There's one thing. And see, I really believe with all my heart that it doesn't take Satan five things to get us or ten things. It just takes one thing. And when he has us with the one thing, he'll let us be religious and good and church members. And he'll let us measure ourselves against ourselves. And we will look just like we're, we're, we're the cream of the crop. But if he has just one thing, that's all he needs. And you can see that there and underscore that circle and highlight it, whatever you've got to do. But make it jump off the page at you when Jesus says in verse 29, you lack one thing. And see, I'm afraid that whenever mediocrity becomes that detour for us is whenever we come up to that one thing with God and that one thing and we say, listen, God, I will give you all these things. And Jesus is saying, no, I want that one thing because it's that one thing that's keeping us from being all in for God. Instead of selling out, we settle. Instead of all in, we hold out. What is the one thing in your life today? And again, you can measure yourself against yourself. You can measure yourself against your neighbor. You can measure yourself against your spouse. But what's that one thing that you're holding on to and holding out on? And the reality is that many of us will hold on to that one thing. For this man, it was his wealth. Now, it could have been any other number of things, but this guy comes up and Jesus sees straight through his heart. He says, there's one thing. It's that last thing you're holding on to. What's the one thing in your life that keeps you from going the way of Jesus that causes you to take a detour? And even Jesus recognized this. Because in Matthew 5, 17, he says, there's the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Only a few find it. See, the broader path, the easier path, the path that everybody else is going to go in your world, in your culture, and even in your circles of Christianity, the path that everybody else is going to go may not be the path that Jesus wants you to go. It may be the path that everybody else is going. It may be the norm. It may be the settled way. But the path that Jesus is wanting you to go is really ratcheted up right here, right now. No holding back any longer. No holding out any longer. No settling any longer. It's now sell out, all in, put the chips on the table. That's why I'm saying today, this may be the most important of the message of the entire series because we've been living in mediocrity for so long. This is going to rattle your cage. Because you're looking at all these things you've done, but you're looking at the one thing right now staring you in the face that you haven't given up for God. I love what John Walker says. It's very convicting. But he says it like this, when Jesus calls you to follow him, he isn't asking you to become a nice person, to do your best at helping others. He didn't die so you could feel good about the things that you screwed up. 
He says you could carry a sentimental hope of being reunited beyond the grave with people who you love and who have died. His call is a command for you to be comprehensively, absolutely walk away from the way you do life so that you will follow Him down an exclusive path through the narrow gate that leads to the kingdom of heaven. That is an all-in statement. It is not about just eternally in heaven and being with Jesus someday. Where are you going to go when you die? Where are you living and how are you living now? What are you holding out on? Jesus calls us to be all in. What is the one thing He's asking of you today? I told uh, the, the 23 families that went over to the Rogers campus about a study that was done by the military academy at West Point. Whenever they found that about 1 in 20 cadets, well, about 1,200 uh, cadets will show up at uh, West Point every, every summer, and they will show up because they have applied and they have gone through the rigorous disciplines to get there and their academics has been there their 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 performance in the community has been there there's so much to get into an academy like that you have to be nominated uh, or recommended by your congressman there's so much to get in there 1200 cadets will show up there with the dreams of one day graduating from west point and in the summer they will first of all take them through a rigorous routine of uh, a basic training for these cadets but they found in the process that one in 20 of these of these cadets will not finish the four-year program. They will not even make it to the first day of class in the fall. And so a number of professors got together, a couple from West Point, uh, one from University of Pennsylvania, one from the University of Michigan, and they began to study these cadets, and they began to try to figure out what was the difference between those who made it and those who didn't make it, those who went for four years or those who even made it through the summer and those who didn't make it through the summer. What was it that made them? Was it their scholastic ability? Was it their athleticism? Was it their intellect? Was it their leadership abilities? Was it their well-roundedness? And they came out with one word to describe the difference between those who made it and those who didn't make it. And they said the word is grit. They had grit. They had, and they defined grit as perseverance and passion for the long-term goal. What happens with mediocrity is whenever perseverance and commitment slide off the scale and we no longer are with grit, fighting for, longing for, pushing for, doing all we can for the kingdom of God, and we just kind of settle. We settle. My faith is good enough and I don't have to do any more. I don't need to give any more, think any more, pray any more. It just is good enough. Beware of the deer of mediocrity. How do you avoid this detour? You amplify your commitment. You need to amplify your commitment if you're going to avoid this detour. And that means you're going to have the grit That means you're going to have the determination. You're going to have the all-in. You're not going to hold out any longer. The perseverance is going to be there. The passion is going to be there. You're going to amplify the commitment of your heart and your life today. And I don't know what that, listen, 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 that one thing is. Whatever it is, identify it today. The second is the dead end. The dead end that can so easily creep into our affluent society is materialism. Mediocrity will obviously detour you and get you to settle on this side street instead of staying on the main street. But materialism, again, wake up America. 
wake up to the reality that materialism has become a God inside of America. Now, just because you have wealth, again, does not make you a materialist. But having wealth or pursuing wealth or longing for wealth and all of a sudden all about riches and getting ahead in life. And, and again, we live every day thinking, spending, investing about money. So it's really easy in American culture to live for wealth in the pursuit thereof. So be careful that materialism doesn't become your God, little G God, and you miss the big G God. And none of us would ever wake up in the morning, or probably not many of us anyway, would wake up in the morning and say, I am a materialist. All right? I'm rich. You know, you ever wake up on Saturday morning and you're laying there in bed and you just say, honey, we're rich. You know, we've arrived. You know, nobody wakes up and declares their richness. Nobody wakes up and says, you know what, we've made it. We're now, that, that we've crossed that line. You know, this promotion or this thing, it gave us what we needed, and now we are rich. You don't think, most people don't think they're rich. In fact, it's just a subtle thing that happens, and, and we're rich. And then all of a sudden, because we live in it so much, and because we have now so much that we've bought with this that we have, and all of a sudden we're, we're spending so much time going sideways to sideways. We've got so much sideways energy that now this becomes our daily pursuit in and out, and no longer are we moving ahead. Sideways energy has taken the place of forward progress. Riches, blessings from God have now become materialistic things, and none of us think we're rich. In fact, whenever you come to the Scriptures and the Bible starts talking about wealth and all that, you say, well, that doesn't talk about me. I can skip right over this verse. The Bible has a lot to say about wealth and wealthy people, from Old Testament to New Testament. If you're like me, I read those verses like, well, one of these days when I'm rich, then this will be a verse I'll come back and study. But right now, I'm not rich. I heard a pastor recently kind of painted a very good picture, and I kind of want to borrow from him to say, you know what, we've got to realize in America all of us are rich. We're all very rich. Rich people have unique problems. They have unique issues. They have unique stresses. Rich people, you know, they have so much money that, that, that they have to literally go and hire somebody to help them manage their money. They're called financial planners. They, they, they go and they actually, now just think about this. I know none of us in this room are rich. We never declare ourselves rich. But the rich people that are beyond these four walls, they have to have somebody help manage their money because they realize at the end of their life that they're literally going to run out of life before they run out of money. But, you know, those are unique problems only to rich people because, you know, but none of us really have to worry about that kind of stuff because we're not rich. They have, like, rich people have, like, 401Ks, like some strange kind of things out there that they're actually planning for today, and they're saving for that, and they're not, it's really, rich people have some different stresses. Rich people do weird things in their homes. They go into their homes and they take out these perfectly good refrigerators and these perfectly good ranges and they take these these countertops that you can stand on and jump on and they literally rip them out of their house. And they go back and they put brand new ones in. Now they could have stood on these and jumped on these countertops, but somehow they got old. But yet you could stand and drive a car on top of them, but they're old and we've got to get rid of them because we're going to bring in some new and so they start looking at this new stuff, and then all of a sudden they're going to do this whole home makeover. And so they're going to remodel the house, and they're going to put this new, new, new stuff in. And the dust is flying in the house. They start complaining about something that they created. 
And so they can't cook meals anymore in their upstairs kitchen, so they've got to go to the downstairs kitchen. Or if they don't have a downstairs kitchen, this is unique problems that rich people have. They have to go out to overpriced restaurants to prepare their food for them to be brought to them. It's amazing. I bought a box of macaroni and cheese, Kraft macaroni and cheese, 67 cents at Walmart. You go to Chili's today, you'll buy that same box and spend about two bucks. All right? And you'll only get half that box. But rich people can do that. Rich people could go out to restaurants and spend all kinds of money with overpriced that they could go home and prepare the same meal themselves. Hey, but that's okay because we're all rich. Rich people do funny things. They have unique stresses that I, I know we don't fully understand. Rich people, they have jobs that every year literally their bosses tell them don't come to work for two weeks and we'll pay you not to come to work. We will let you go anywhere in the world that you want to go, and we'll pay you. And if you stay there long enough, you may get up to a month or longer. Rich people get paid to not come to work. That only happens in rich countries, okay? That doesn't happen in the rest of the world. It happens in rich countries. But, men, you can literally not get work and still get paid for it. And then the funny thing is, then the family gathers around the coffee table, the kitchen table, the dining room table, one of the many tables they have in their houses, and they talk about what are they going to do with the two weeks that they have off with all this extra money that they have now to do. And so they're going to go, get on planes, and they're going to go to these places that they get entertained, and they're going to spend hundreds of dollars, and then they're going to come back exhausted, stressed out, and, 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 and their credit cards to the max. And that's just what rich people do. It's funny. It's funny. Rich people do strange things. They they even have things in their houses. They have rooms that you walk in. They have doors on these rooms and lights in these and mirrors and all this. They're they're rooms only for clothes. That's right. Rich people have unique issues. They have rooms dedicated to clothes. And they walk into these closets, they call them. And they look at these clothes. And they look at these mounds of clothes and rows and rows and rows and rows all the way around the room. It's just covered with clothes. And they look at these clothes and they go, and what do they say? I have Yes! I've never seen that. It's never happened in my house. I've only heard that that happens, all right? But rich people have strange and unique challenges that, that I know you and I don't, don't have to deal with on, on a day-to-day basis, but they just struggle with these issues. Teenagers in these rich houses will go into the, these rooms, again, dedicated rooms, sometimes with multiple doors, that will have food from the top to the bottom, full of food. They call them pantries or something like that. And there will be food all in there. The teenagers will open it up and look at the massive amounts of food. Then they'll go to the refrigerator. They'll leave that door open, by the way. No, they'll, they'll open that door. This big box. It's, it's taller than I am and fatter than I am. And it's full of food. And they'll leave those two doors open, too. And they'll say, Mom, Dad, there's nothing to eat in here. That's what rich people do. The reality is none of us are rich, right? None of us deal with these issues because we're not rich. The reality is we're all rich. And we just don't realize that we're rich. We don't realize how it consumes us. Gallup poll did a study of a bunch of Americans asking them what they saw as from anywhere from the common blue-collar worker to the millionaires. And they asked them what it took to be rich. In short, about every two, if you would double uh, your income or, or two and a half times your income, then that would make you rich. So they, they began to ask people 
who made $30,000 a year, what it would take for you to be wealthy. And they would basically came back and said, $74,000 a year, that would make me wealthy. But those who are making thirty dollars or $50,000 a year, what would it take to make you wealthy? And they said, $100,000 a year is what it would take to make me wealthy. And then I would know that I am wealthy. Most Americans felt, on average, that if you made $120,000 a year, then you are wealthy. They asked the, 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 the top U.S. earners, they said, what would it take to make you wealthy? And they said that $5 million in assets could create an after-tax income of $200,000 a year and helping them to earn that much money if they had $5 million and they would consider themselves wealthy. And I want to go, really? Finally, we're at something here. What does wealth look like to us? What about globally? Because I think we're kind of jacked up in America. What about globally? Do you realize if you make $37,000 this past year, you are among the top 6% income earners in the world? And then if you made $47,000 this past year, you are in the top 1%. Are you rich today? Am I rich today? Absolutely. Some of us are filthy rich. But none of us see ourselves as rich. Bill Gates was going through India since he's left Microsoft. He, focusing on his foundation, went through India and was, was going through this one village. And, and a reporter was with him, stayed with him to chronicle the study all the way through. And he goes into the single mom's house in one of the poorest countries, one of the poorest women, in one of the poorest countries in the world. And he sat in her home. And they talked and they shared, what are your needs, what are your hurts, what are your pains? He gets up and leaves. The reporter stays behind and asks this lady one question. Do you realize who just left your house? And she said, no. She said, the richest man in the world just left your house. And without blinking her eye, the reporter said, everybody from the West is rich. See, the reality is, is we're always looking there and we're never realizing here we have been blessed. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if I was a betting man, I'd put my last dollar on the table and say that everyone in this room, I'll say 90% of the people in this room are making more money this year than you've ever made in your life. Now, that may be not true of retired people, but I'll say that most of us are making more money today than we've ever made in our life. So what does that mean? That means we keep waiting, but all of a sudden we are wealthy and we don't realize it. And I want to just tell you this. Your wealth may be your greatest stumbling block, your greatest dead-end street. Not because wealth is bad, evil, ungodly. God owns all the wealth, okay? Let's just get that on the table. That's throughout Scripture. But what we may have to realize is that the stumbling block of our life may be the wealth of our own life. Verse 23, Jesus said, How difficult is it for, to be for the wealth, uh, to have wealth and to enter the kingdom of heaven? Verse 25, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person into the kingdom of heaven. Your greatest stumbling block, Jesus recognized, He says, you cannot serve God and money. 
He could have put any other thing in there, but he chose money to put in there because he realized something about money and stuff. His stuff begins to consume us, and it becomes our God. I don't care if you've got a lot, you're making thirty-seven or $370,000. We have got to realize where we're at. And we've read the story where Jesus tells him, you got one thing, and that one thing is your wealth. And the man leaves disheartened because he realized that he would have to give up that one thing. Luke chapter 14, verse 33 says, Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Everything belongs to him. How do you avoid the dead end? Simplify your stuff. Simplify your stuff. Amplify your commitment to avoid the detour. Simplify your stuff to avoid the dead end. I like what John Piper said. He said, hold your life cheap and be faithful until death. The problem is we're living the American dream too much that we have bought into the American lie. Has anybody heard of the American lie? The American lie says it like this. We believe that if we have more of what we already have, It's going to solve our ills. We believe if we have more of what we already have, more of a house, more of a car, more of a salary, more of this, that it will solve our ills. And that becomes the focus of our life. I want to give you three challenges today. Jot them down. Three challenges as you go. Number one, I would like for you to think about this week eating less. Start tomorrow. All right? Go gorge today, I guess. Eat less. I want you to think about this. Think about taking a challenge of living like they do in Africa. Living like they do in India. Living like most of the people on the planet live. Do we realize that two billion people a day live on less than a dollar a day? What if we, this next week, we were to just eat a subsistent diet? What would a subsistent diet look like? It would look like beans and rice. Beans and rice. Beans and rice. And when you get tired of beans and rice, have rice and beans. We began to think about that. What would, it, what, would, what would a person drink? It wouldn't be fancy drinks or expensive alcohol. It wouldn't be that. It would be water. It would be tap water. Maybe tomorrow you'll take the challenge and you'll just take a week. And what would you eat for breakfast? You might eat porridge. Something pretty simple, something pretty bland. What would you eat throughout the rest of the day? Probably vegetables and only what's ripe at that, at that season. A salad, a nice big salad. Probably a pretty simple salad. Maybe even dry salad. Would they eat three meals a day, four meals? You're lucky to get two meals a day. I want to take you to challenge this week to eat less on purpose. Because in our obese society, in our overabundant society, what we need to think about as we think about how unwealthy we are or how unrich we are, we are absolutely filthy rich. And God is going to hold us accountable. God is going to hold us accountable. I want you to also think about living on less. Living on less. What does that mean? You might think about an ABC budget plan. 
And I'll, I'll tell you what, anybody will write info at gracepointchurch.net. I will send you a, a Excel spreadsheet that will make it really easy. All you have to do is say, send me the AC, ABC plan, and I will send it to you. It's really easy, all right? It came to me in the middle of the night. I woke up, wrote it down, and I've had Michael Lettner, one of our great former church members who knows Excel, help work up of this system for me. ABC stands for Absolute Basic and Comfort. If you'll take your income and you will start laying it out on a template, that you'll say, I absolutely got to have this. Instead of all the stuff that we have and all the stuff that we spend on, we'll start lining things up and say, I absolutely, I've got to have a house. I've got to have water. I've got to have, you know, one, at least one form of transportation. I don't have to have five or three or two, whatever, but I've got to think about the very basics of what you have to, have to, have to have. Put it in that line item. Try to keep it under 50%. 50 to 60 percent. All right? That doesn't mean we're going to take the other, but just hang with me. B are your basics. What would you do beyond that? Just absolutely what you got. You got to have. You got to have. The, 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 the B may be, okay, I, I got to have at least one car, and if we, even if we have to share it, okay? But, uh, but B would be, oh, boy, it would really be nice to have two cars because I work over here and, and, my, and my spouse works over here or she has to shuffle or he has to shuffle the, car, the kids around. So, you know, okay, two cars would be a basic nice thing, but I don't have to have three cars. See, we're a three-car family, but do we really have to have three cars, the McDaniels? Do we really have to? Or is that a, a letter C, a comfort? Start thinking of your budget like that. And you know what will happen is whenever it then comes up that time to, oh, my, my land is need here. Oh, my land, I could go on mission here. Oh, what, what can I do here? It's no longer, you know what, I've done the budget. I don't have any money left. It's now that I start carving into my C's so that I can be on mission with God, so I can start finding money to, to give to the Lord, so I can have money to help somebody out in need. So if I, but if everything is an absolute, then it's really hard to find time and money for God. Think about it. Shoot me an email. I'll send you the budget. Number three, pray more. I want you to take this week. I want you to ask God some tough questions and listen to the tough answers. Mediocrity. Have I settled, God? Or is there one or two more things that I need to give up? One or two more things that I'm holding out on? What is it, Lord? The sad thing is, is what about, what about material stuff? Money's not evil. I'll say that again and again and again because I don't want you to walk out of here thinking that for one minute. But, but what about the material that you've been blessed with? How free is God to reach in to your life and to say, you could help an entire community have clean water to drink with the bottled water, if you gave up the bottled water that you drink? I don't know. Let God speak to you in that area. Pray more this week than you've ever had before. How does all this happen? How do we amplify my commitment? I simplify my stuff. Things start getting radical in my life. But if I don't amplify my commitment, if I don't simplify my stuff, I don't have room for God. You know how the story ends. The story ends simply by the man walking away. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. Let's pray to God. Lord, 
in every way of our life. In every corner, we want it to be yours. We talk about it, we sing about it, but Lord, help us to carve out and make space for you. No holding back. Show us the mediocrity of our life. Show us the materialism that consumes us. In Jesus' name.